This episode of I'm Horrified is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Go to audibletrial.com horrified to get your free audiobook and start listening. It's that easy. Right now, I'm listening to Going Clear by Lawrence Wright, which pairs perfectly with our Scientology segment in episode 6. And I'm listening to The Rogue Not Taken by Sarah McLean, a sizzling romance novel for those who enjoyed episode 49. So head to audibletrial.com horrified to start your free trial now. Happy listening! Holy shit! Hello, babies. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another exciting and enthralling episode of I'm Horrified. Sexy, steamy episode of I'm Horrified. Absolutely. Episode 57. Episode 57. Girl. That's a good one. That's a good one. I can already tell that this is going to be a great episode, and I'm going to say that now, and then we're going to edit it out later if it turns out to not be a good episode. (laughs) like, oh, this was not a strong one. Uh, it's happened before. It will happen again. I, I've i never listened to an episode of ours and been like, it's not good. I, I've only ever listened and been like, that was better than I thought it was. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, only four times have I gone, that was great. <laughs> That's true. That's um, fair. But usually I'm like, you know what? I'd listen. Let's do it. <laughs> and we imagine that's what all of you are thinking right now. <laughs> you know what? I've got an hour. Um. So today I'm going to be talking about something I've wanted to talk about for a really long time, which is the wedding industry. I'm so excited to hear you talk about this. I'm so excited. I cannot wait. Um, And I'm going to talk about something I just found out about recently, which is the 1996 Mount Everest disaster. And you said that you were doing this for segment two, (laughs) and I was like, are you sure? Like, this is not going to take that long? I'm going to keep it light. Oh, good. Only eight people died. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) Let's talk about weddings first. Yeah, maybe we should flip these. No. But we, we're not going to. Um, so, first off, apologies. I know somebody tweeted asking us to cover the wedding industry, mm-hmm. and I could not find what tweet it was. But totally, to be honest, you have been talking about doing the wedding industry since very early in the podcast. I have, I have, but I, I do want to give a shout out to this nameless Twitter person who I hope tweets their tweet at me (laughs) and is like, hey, I asked you to do this. And I feel like it was like five days ago and I just (laughs) couldn't find it. I'm so sorry. But, you know, moving on. The wedding industry. So I am an event planner. That's what I do for a living. And you were also an event planner up until recently, Sam. I was. I sure was. It made me stop liking parties. So I stopped. You don't, you didn't love it. (laughs) I did not love it. (laughs) I loved aspects of it, but then there were aspects that made me not like going to parties anymore. It's pretty stressful. It's a stressful job. It's, it's a lot of responsibility, but I really like planning large-scale parties, events, and working with vendors and all that jazz. Now, more to the point, I love weddings. <laughs> you do. <laughs> Neither of us are engaged no. or plan to be, like, right away or anything like that, but we love talking about weddings, <laughs> what we want to do at our wedding, how we want to plan it. How we want everyone to be involved, what food we're going to have, what fancy dessert we're going to have. We do sometimes play a game with each other called Morning of Your Wedding. It's uh, a great game. Which we haven't played in a while, but it's like you come up with a disaster scenario and then you say to the other person, like, okay, it's the morning of your wedding. Yeah, and your best friend, like, has to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, so like, what I think, to do for you. Sam, one of yours was like, it's the morning of your wedding and your fiance comes up to you and says, my girlfriend from six years ago just called me and said that you know, she had a son by me and yeah. I'm a father. Yeah. What do, what do I do? do? 
I don't remember what my answer was for you. I think you. you said you'd marry him. I think I'd marry him. I think I said I'd marry him, too, and it was just like... But then the other one was, like, morning of your wedding, and your fiancé comes up to you and he says, I couldn't marry you without getting this off my chest. Like, at the beginning of our relationship, we've been dating for five yeah, years, yeah, yeah, but yeah, the yeah. first year I cheated on you. Uh-huh. It was, like, a one-night stand. It didn't mean anything, but I, I couldn't marry you without telling you without that. Without you knowing. That's like, also a what do you one. do? And do you marry him? Do you not marry him? And it's like, this is the this is the stakes of morning of your wedding. It's the fucking dresses on. Yep. The people are sitting down. The event's been planned. It's been planned, and it's happening. It's happening. So if, what do you do? If you, if you don't want to get married, you're you're calling it off. Yeah. You're sending everyone home like with their toasters. Yeah. So this couldn't have less to do with what I'm about to talk about. Sorry, I brought it up. But no, I mean, we'll play more of it at the end if we have time. But so that's Morning of Your Wedding. It's a game that Sam and I invented and love. Um, we should we should start tweeting out Morning of Your Wedding scenarios. And people can just tell us what they would do. Absolutely. I'll definitely do a couple of those after we air this episode. But I just wanted, I just wanted to preface with that. I love weddings. And it's not like, I can't wait to get married, like, I'm waiting for my partner to, like, put a ring on it. I I just love the idea of planning a wedding. It sounds really fun to me as somebody who already loves big parties and fucking linens and shit. Like, I love it. So anything I say in the next 25 minutes or so, (laughs) just take, I'm not making fun of you if you had a big wedding. I'm not, I'm not being holier than thou. No. Like, I can absolutely see myself like, flipping out and spending five grand in a paper source on wedding invitations that I don't need. Absolutely. I'm not better than you. No. I am one of you. Yes. That's all I'm saying. We are of the people. We are of the people, if nothing else. So, I've been interested in the wedding industry for a very, very long time. In my line of work, I come across lots of wedding packages and PDFs and menus, venue Mm -hmm. rules, all that kind of stuff when I'm researching venues, photographers, what have you. And in the past 10 to 20 years or so, some would say longer, something has been happening to American weddings. Now, something's been happening to weddings around the world, really, but I'll be focusing on American weddings just because we are American. and That's true. That's the bulk of the information that I have. So I did a little research on weddings, specifically the cost of weddings in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. In 1994, an average wedding cost between $10,000 and $15,000. That's a lot of money. That's a lot. <laughs> um, so that's keeping up with the times, pretty much all the bells and whistles. So in 2018, what do you think the average wedding would cost, Sam? Um, I mean, my cheap heart would love for the cost to have gone down, but I know that's not true. $8,000. <laughs> yeah. Medium. Solid hundred bucks and you're out of there. Um, <laughs> I would say if it was 15000 when we were born, I would say twenty-five. So in 2018, the average wedding cost between a mean of $29,000 and $35,000. Okay. I so, don't like it. So that ranges from between $19,000 in Alabama. Great. To $88,000 in Manhattan. Okay, well, if you're going to get married in Manhattan, that's your fault. Yeah, that's a choice you've made. In our fair city of Boston, the average was just north of $39,000. Oh. <laughs> Big O. So, um, the next question, Allie, would you travel to Alabama for my wedding? Morning of my wedding, and it's in Alabama. Are <laughs> Morning you of my wedding. I told you it was in Quincy, but it's in Alabama. Uh, no. Um, I mean, I would. I'd do whatever you want. Um, so, in 2017, the wedding industry 
as a whole, you know, the profit made off of vendors, cake, flowers, etc., was valued at roughly $72 billion in, <laughs> in America alone. Holy shit. So that's a lot. That's a lot. One of my favorite BuzzFeed articles I've ever read was called, Here's What My Parents' 1974 Wedding Would Cost in 2017 Dollars. <laughs> so the writer, Meg Keane, goes through absolutely every aspect of her parents' marriage and calls around to get prices for what those things would cost now in the same city, which happens to be San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So she adjusts for inflation And even after she does that, the increases are insane. Her parents in 1974 spent about $2,000-ish on their wedding. Mm -hmm. So in 2017 dollars, that's about $10,000. So that's on the cheap side. Well, so what that means is, in theory, $10,000 should buy you a perfectly nice wedding because you have adjusted for inflation. Yeah. She fully adjusted for inflation, so it's like that's... That is, in theory, the spending power of buying milk and groceries and a couch, yeah. etc. And as she says, one would expect to be able to pay for a lovely wedding with ten grand because that is, quote, a fuck ton of money. Yeah. So she went through and tried to do everything the exact same way. Same cake, same invitations, everything. And in the end, doing everything almost absolutely the same, the wedding came to a total of $47,000. Yep. Yeah, your face is like, no. Wait, I'm trying, like, I try on this podcast to make my reactions verbal because it's an audio <laughs> But you medium. cannot. I, oh my god. Yeah. I'm horrified. What the so, fuck? the tech boom has made San Francisco pretty much unlivable. Yes, that's true. And that happened after 1974, but that's still a 370% increase After adjusting for inflation. It's fucked up. So, like, that is simply a huge, huge increase in the factors at play. Yeah. That's just, we have to grapple with that. And that's just the reception and the ceremony itself. But what about all the extra events that go along with a wedding? This is something that's kind of been pissing me off in recent years. Because I feel like (laughs) when you get married, you actually have, like, ten tiny weddings. Yeah. And then a big, big wedding. And it's like, who's paying for all this? So some things that you could have in addition to your ceremony are an engagement party. Don't really understand that. A bridal shower, a couple shower, I'll allow it. A bachelorette party, a bachelor party. A welcome party, which is something I learned about, to, what like, is- start the weekend off if it's a weekend-long wedding. Oh. It doesn't seem necessary to be. A rehearsal dinner, an after party. Isn't that just the wedding? Isn't oh is it a, a rehearsal dinner and an after party? No, and re- then the ceremony and then the part what? No, a rehearsal dinner, then the reception, then the ceremony, then the reception, and then an after party after the reception. But the reception is the after party. That's what I thought, Sam. And then also a day after brunch. Like you got to give everybody brunch when they wake up. No, you can pay for your own damn brunch if you're coming to my wedding. <laughs> That's what I would think. I'm sorry. I am not, I'm going to have an open bar at my wedding. I'm going to do right by my people. Yeah, you got to have an open bar. I'm sorry. But you can And that's an American thing. I know that's an American thing. Apparently in Europe, it's much less of a thing to have an open bar. But in America, like, there's no point in going if you don't have an open bar. But it's like, you can pay for your own eggs and granola in the morning. Yeah. Or maybe just stay at a Hilton that gives you it. Yeah, absolutely. At a Hampton Inn, they take care of it. Right. I agree. So I know many women, and by no, I mean I follow them on Instagram, mm-hmm. who have had all of these. <laughs> and I've also heard of something called a Jack and Jill, which is like a fundraiser for a wedding. Okay. That's something that I just learned about. It That seems absurd to me, but whatever. Um, 
So that's like a month of events. Yeah, that's a lot. Right? And all of those things, I think mainly due to comparison culture and the need to document how fabulous and splendid your life is, have become insanely expensive. It's not enough to just have a bachelorette party. You need a bachelorette weekend and you need it to be in Puerto Rico for some reason. <laughs> like bridal showers are happening at venues rather than in people's houses. So that's a whole nother like food and beverage minimum cost, venue cost, etc. And then like I, the last wedding I went to, there was a brunch afterwards and they paid for it. Like it was this whole big thing. Okay. So that's a crushing amount of money for the couple themselves, but it's also really expensive if you're, say, a bridesmaid, because let's be serious, these insanely involved wedding traditions usually revolve around the bride mm -hmm. in a very heteronormative, strange way, but if you are involved in the bride side of a wedding, oftentimes you end up having to do five different activities beforehand, buying outfits, buying plane tickets, yeah. buying lodging, all of this stuff. And it all adds up to this insane amount for everybody. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about why this is. So there is something called the wedding markup or the wedding tax. Vox has a great video on this called Why Are Weddings So Damn Expensive? <laughs> where they have a woman call and ask for a venue quote for a wedding. And then a man call separately and ask for a venue quote for a family gathering same amount of people, same place, same date. Whoa. Everything the same except one of them calls it a wedding, one of them calls it a family gathering. The family gathering receives a quote of $15,000 for food and beverage minimum, and the wedding receives a quote of seventeen. Why? Because it's a wedding. <laughs> so that's an example of the wedding tax. And so that's something that happens in, like, basically all vendor fields. Like, if you say you're getting a bunch of flowers for an event, it's different from a wedding package of flowers. Photographers have wedding packages as opposed to corporate and event packages. It's a separate cost and a separate item. It kind of makes sense, and I'll say why in a little bit, but a lot of it, it can be kind of shady. Mm -hmm. So in this Vox video, they talk about the idea of asymmetric information, and they use an example of an avocado. Okay. So you see an avocado for $8 and you think, that's stupid. Or I'm at Whole Foods. Yeah. Um, you think that because you've bought an avocado before and you've bought produce before and you understand that that's not something that one vegetable or fruit, I'm not sure which, should cost. Agree. So that is basically like symmetric information. Both the, the buyer and the vendor have a f have a shared familiarity with a market and that fosters a mutual understanding between buyers and sellers so a fair price can be settled on so that's symmetric information asymmetric information is when you're the kind of person who just works for a living mm -hmm. <laughs> you're an accountant or whatever and then you ask a person how much money it is to buy a cake that feeds 150 people mm -hmm. You have no marker for what that is. Yeah. You have no idea what that's supposed to cost. Because mm -hmm. it's like, do you go off of a sheet cake or do you go off of if you buy a slice of cake at a bakery? Yeah. Times that by 150. Like what? You don't have a familiarity with the marketplace. And so you have no gauge on what those items should be costing you. And so you don't have confidence when you go in to negotiate. Now, vendors know this, and they stay away from price negotiations up front because of this, and they pull you in, and they give you information about their product, and they make you fall in love with what it is that they're selling, and then they can say, and this is what it costs, and this is a totally fair price for what it is because it's a wedding. 
And because of that, they're able to convince you that they're worth whatever they're charging you, which could be anything. So in defense of vendors, there is more of a social aspect rather than just corporate greed driving these vendor prices up. I need to be fair. Because a lot of the vendors associated with weddings end up being smaller businesses like florists, dress designers, caterers, etc. So a reasonable explanation for this wedding tax is that when you're shopping for, say, a photographer on your wedding day, it's different than hiring a photographer for a corporate event. Like when I hire a photographer for one of my events, I find somebody I trust and then I just have them show up yeah. at five or whenever my event starts, and I let them loose. I give them a little bit of direction. Yeah. That's that. You maybe give them, like, three people to get a picture of, and yeah. then you're like, otherwise, I want them to be nice. But it, it's just, it's much less involved mm-hmm. for that vendor. With a wedding, there is so much pressure and responsibility on those vendors, again, who sometimes are smaller businesses, to get everything absolutely perfectly. And yeah, people with small businesses, like, their time is money, and every little, if every little last daffodil in the bouquet has to be perfect, otherwise they'll get chewed out by some bridezilla, I get why you need to charge more for your time. Mm-hmm. However, there is a consistent theme of lack of transparency in pricing, and, you know, it's hard to know whether someone's genuinely trying to give you the best product possible or they're just trying to rip you off. Like, you could be a florist and say, you know, I'm not going to be able to give you what you want unless I commit more time to this, and that's going to cost money because I have to give up other business to make sure that you get exactly what you want, and that could be a totally legitimate thing. Or they could just be like, oh, it's your wedding. It's your special day. I know that you're going to say yes to whatever I'm charging you. And this whole wedding markup conversation ties into the once-in-a-lifetime idea that vendors use on people getting married over and over and over again, which Box also mentions. This has way less to do with the vendors and more to do with society, Mm -hmm. but it does help the vendors. Yeah. (laughs) We have built so much into the idea of this day, this special momentous occasion, that we go a little crazy trying to get every detail right. Mm -hmm. But more on the sociology of that later. Ooh. So why is this happening? Why have we gotten to the point or, you know, based on supply and demand, allowed ourselves to get to this point where weddings are so cataclysmically expensive? So I touched on this a little bit before, but I really want to explore this idea of comparison culture. And it's something that started coming up in the news a little bit. Jamila Jamil, who's an actual goddess, has been talking about it a lot. Instagram culture, comparison culture, all of that stuff. It's something that's driving a lot of negativity, especially for young people, and it's definitely a factor at play here. Basically, what I mean when I say comparison culture is we live in a world where you, if you have a phone, are constantly comparing your life to somebody else's. Yeah. And only the best parts of somebody else's life. Only the parts they're willing to put on the internet. Exactly. Exactly. And that is damaging yeah. <laughs> to our self-esteem, to our self-worth, to our understanding of what a life should be like, mm-hmm. to our understanding of what relationships should be like. It's bad for a host of reasons. But there is a Forbes article entitled, How Social Media Has Transformed the Idea and Costs of the Ideal Wedding. And in that, Andrew Arnold writes... Social media leaves us feeling pressure to show only the best of our lives. This pursuit of perfection is even having an impact on our mental well-being. We put only our best out there when it comes to relationships, careers, vacations, weddings, and honeymoons. Because brides and grooms aren't seeing the mistakes and frustrations of others, they have unrealistic ideals to look up to. 
Once the rain goes on, the pressure is on to find the perfect looking cake, to book the perfect place for the reception, and to coordinate the biggest blowout of a reception. Couples even struggle to find the perfect wedding hashtag as a way to brand their own nuptials. There's even DIY pressure from sites like Pinterest, where pages curate the perfect decorations, flower arrangements, and spreads. Even Snapchat has geofilters just for weddings. Between the constant exposure and pressure, the stress of it all can be very real and can have negative impacts on people. So that's really, really worth considering when you think about the wedding industry. We're both nearly 25, and our news feeds are saturated with engagements, weddings, baby announcements, all of these markers of life moving forward. And so many of them are monetized in some way. Mm -hmm. So, like, an engagement shot on some tropical vacation with a four-carat diamond. That's something you see, and now it's like, oh, maybe I want that. You know what I mean? And even (laughs) even though I, as a human being, don't want that. Yes. (laughs) You know. Well, it's not that I don't want that. But it's just, (laughs) I, as a human being, I'm, like, not expecting that. Yeah. Of, co- of course, it's hard to look at that and be like, I'm just a human being. Yeah. I'm not, you know. And the more you see that, the more you're like, well, that must be normal then. Exactly right. And it's like, you see an amazing wedding cake in somebody's feed or some fabulous new food idea or venue or honeymoon. And before, if you couldn't afford those things, you could just like set down the magazine you were reading and be like, well, you know, not for me. <laughs> and now like there's all these fun things that you look at and you want them but and you also feel like everyone can afford them but you if they're all over your feed you think well there must be some way that I can afford this so what do you do do you take out a loan well you just overspend however that means for you you go into debt you take out a loan like you know you want you want these things so badly because you see it reflected back at you and I understand that The other thing I found really interesting when reading parts of a book by Rebecca Mead called One Perfect Day is this obsession we have with our weddings as if it is truly the most important day of our lives. When in reality, most of us already live with our partners when we marry them, Mm -hmm. or we sometimes even have children with them. Yeah. (laughs) So then that would probably be the most important day of your life. And Rebecca has this really interesting theory as to why we put so much weight on this day and making everything perfect. It's kind of an older article, but in a 2007 interview with Salon, she said, I think that people need for weddings to feel traumatic because it used to be a traumatic transition. You left your parents home. If you look at documents, diaries, or letters from women in 19th century rural America getting married, leaving their mother was a very, very big deal. Now, most of us have done that years earlier, and to some degree, even those people who are living at home are still leading more independent lives. But I think that people still need to feel that this transition is a viscerally affecting experience, because being married is very different from not being married. I don't mean that if you get married tomorrow, suddenly your life is going to be different the next day, but it is a different commitment, as anybody who is going through a divorce will tell you. (laughs) It's much harder to break up a marriage than it is to break up a non-marital partnership. So I think people need the sense of, wow, something really big has just happened. (laughs) And I think that that's really smart of her to say. That is. That's on the money. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of the combination of this social decision that, wow, we as people... And this is mainly marketed towards cis women of, like, I, as a woman, need this rite of passage, right? Like, you need it to feel whole. Yeah. And there are so many things wrong with that. But it's a combination of the social attitude stemming from comparison culture, you know, stemming from that desire to fit in and keep up with the Joneses, all of that, combined with the cold, hard capitalism of the wedding industry. Mm -hmm. They're both at play here, and they're feeding off of each other. Yeah. 
As Rebecca Mead further says in her salon interview, in 1939, one survey showed that 16% of brides were married in clothes they already owned, a third married without an engagement ring, and roughly a third didn't go on a honeymoon. Yet, those are all things we think of as absolutely essential, right? So it's like, that goes right back to the point that you made in your diamond inflation episode. Mm. Like, these industries are capitalizing off of our nostalgia and our traditions, quote-unquote, and our desire to mine meaning out of stuff we can buy, but a lot of it's made up. Yeah. To sell stuff. To sell stuff. So, to wrap it up, I just want to share my two cents. Give me And them. first, like, I just want to reiterate, I really understand where this, some, like, where this comes from. I love shiny shit and parties, and I love needlessly expensive paper goods, like I said, Mm -hmm. and whenever I see wedding-y things, like, I swoon, just like everybody else. (laughs) And a lot of it has to do with Instagram. Seriously. I see these amazing weddings, and I get really jealous, and I get really upset thinking, oh, I'm never going to be able to afford that, and, like, how much credit card debt would I be willing to go into (laughs) to have that donut wall or something? So I really understand the pressure that people feel and the pressure that people are under to create this perfect moment, I guess. But secondly, and I don't mean to sound like a wet blanket or like Susie Orman, (laughs) but it is partly and maybe on the whole our choice to participate in the wedding industry and in comparison culture and in that social demand. You know, it can, I know it can be really hard to turn down a beautiful cake that you saw or a gorgeous vintage car to bring you to your ceremony or the venue you've been dreaming about. But at the end of the day, it is a purchase you're making, Mm -hmm. you know, and it should not under any circumstances lead you into financial ruin. And branching off of that, the truth is that a wedding is the smallest speck of your marriage. Like, I think that's something we're kind of moving away from. That's totally true. I think about that all the time. Like, my partner and I have been together for four years, and every day we get up and we choose to love each other deeply and be on each other's team. And sometimes it's easy and sometimes it isn't. Mm -hmm. And if we get married, that's not going to change or become more special. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's still going to be that same choice to get up and love each other. So if we had a wedding, it would be a nice, beautiful day with cake, and you'd have pictures of it forever. But it really wouldn't, like, this sounds harsh, but it's like, it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. It doesn't really, at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Once you make that commitment to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you either make it or you don't. Yeah. And a wedding kind of isn't an indicator of whether or not you have. Yeah. Right? Um, So, you know... It's something that I think I would look back on very fondly, but it would just be one day of what would hopefully be a very long and loving marriage Mm -hmm. that had cake in it. Yeah. (laughs) And that's something that if we thought about that a little bit more, I feel like the pressure would be off Mm -hmm. a little more. And I think that's really important. And you can have cake later in your marriage, too, if you want. You can have cake right now. Yeah, you're an adult. You also don't need to have a partner to go get cake. Go get any. Just live your life. But so I encourage anyone out there in the throes of wedding fever or planning a wedding to think about the choices you're making and why you're making them. Because so many things you can just do without and no one gives a shit. Like, you don't want to do paper invitations? Don't do them. You don't want to have wedding favors? Why do people do that anyways? Don't have them. (laughs) Like, you don't want to have a sit-down dinner? Like, get a food truck. Like, the rules are made up so you don't have to play by them. And everything single decision you make along the way should be an actual decision rather than something compulsory. 
And if your shitty aunt is like, oh, but you have to have printed menus on the plates, like, tell her to fuck off. Mm -hmm. Literally look her dead in the eyes or FaceTime her and tell her to fuck off. Or have her call me and I will tell her to fuck off. Uh, I would love it if you would do that for me. I'd be happy to. <laughs> I'd be more than happy to. Somebody's giving you shit. Like, oh, you, well, you have to have, a, like, a rehearsal dinner. It's like, she doesn't want to. <laughs> Fuck off. Um, so I empower you with that today. Hell yeah. But also, I love looking at bridal magazines. You know you do. I love it. There's nothing I can do You've about it. You've got a copy of Rock and Roll Bride in here somewhere. I love the ads. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do. And that sounds like a crazy woman who's, like, desperate to get a ring on it. Like, I'm really not. No, she just but loves I just, yes. I love interior design. What can I say? <laughs> Nothing doing. But, so that's the wedding industry. I would love oh for gosh. people to tell me their thoughts about the wedding industry mm. and about what you don't need at your wedding. <laughs> for me, it's party favors and, like, a bride's table. Like, Always at weddings, it's like there's a table for the bride and groom, and it's all fancy, and it's got a tiny cake on it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why is this here? Oh, like a sweetheart's table. Yeah, I find that so stupid. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I find a lot of wedding, like traditional wedding things, just very needless at this point. I respect a sweetheart table because it's like I maybe don't want to interact with any of my family. That (laughs) feels very maybe you. (laughs) But it's like you're not going to sit at that fucking – you don't talk like to the – for the people who have I've talked to about their weddings, you don't eat <laughs> and you don't talk to your spouse. You just are passed from relative to relative and you dance around and then you're rustly like nice. That's kind of what it's like. And for a lot of people, weddings are really stressful. Yeah. And it goes by so fast and then you feel like this hangover of like, oh my God, I spent a year and a half planning this <laughs> and I spent the money that was supposed to be the down payment for my house mm-hmm. and it was six hours of my life. Yeah. And now it's gone. And now I'm in a panic. Don't do that. You don't need to do that. You don't need to end up in that position. It's an industry. Mm -hmm. And it's working to get your money as much as it's working to do anything else. And that's something that you just got to know. And don't tell your florist that they're doing a wedding. No. (laughs) You just don't have to do that, I guess. I'm horrified. Like, I need four bouquets for, um... Fun. (laughs) I work for Samsung, and, uh, (laughs) we're doing a retreat, and it's for an exercise. Yeah. So I love that. Don't do that. Just be honest with your florists. <laughs> They'll be nice <sighs> to you, probably. That's the wedding industry. Wow. I had a lot of fun researching for that. Oh, my God. That was so interesting. Wasn't it? It reminded me a lot of your diamond. It's, it's very similar to the diamond inflation yeah. episode in a lot of ways. Y'all, don't get a diamond ring. Don't have a giant wedding. Or do both those things if you really want to. Yeah, I really don't care. Yeah. <laughs> do what makes you happy, but just question it why to, it makes it you happy. It has to be a decision. Yeah. It has to be a decision. Agree. Um, not just something you feel like you have to do. Yes. All right. I think we made our point. I think we did. You guys get it. Hey, horror honeys. We hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, we hope you'll subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at I'm Horrified Pod. Your support means the world to us. And if you're not enjoying the show, why are you still listening? Maybe you do like the show. Let's talk about, um, what is it? Death? Yeah. Great. <laughs> Dead on the mountaintop? Dead on the mountaintop. That sounds like a Bob Dylan song. It really does. Um, so you guys, let's have a chat. Um, you might not know this about me, but I am very afraid of death. Uh, I, I think we all knew that. <laughs> I would never put myself in a position where I am testing the limits of what my body can survive. 
Why would I want to test those limits? Agreed. Why wouldn't I keep my body where it's almost certain to stay alive? We're both pretty soft in general. (laughs) I think everyone's picked up on that by now. Right? Uh, Unfortunately, not everyone is like us. (laughs) Unfortunate. (laughs) For a variety of reasons, it's unfortunate. Uh, And a really popular way to test the limits of the human body is to climb Mount Everest, Earth's highest mountain above sea level. It's almost 30,000 feet tall. Nope, thank you. Yeah, And here's the really horrifying thing about Everest. A ton of people die there, like, all the time. Right. I saw one statistic that for every four people that reach the summit, one person dies. Are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) That is a 25% chance you are going to, or 25%, 20%? 20, I think. 20%. Still. Still. 20% chance you're going to bite it. I know. That is such bullshit. And here's another thing that's uh, pretty bad. Because it's, like, it's so hard to carry yourself up and down Everest. You can't carry someone else's dead body up and down Everest. So the bodies just stay there forever, frozen. And if you want to climb Mount Everest and test your body, you have to step over the dead bodies of people who wanted to climb Mount Everest. Like, you have to? Yeah, there are parts of the trail where you have to. I don't like that. Why would you do that? Why would you want that? Sam, you're yelling at me. Today we're going to talk about some people who wanted that. And guess what? <laughs> are they this all dead? Sh- the show is called I'm Horrified. It's not going to turn out great. Do they all die? Not everyone. Oh, come on. <laughs> so the 1996 Mount Everest disaster occurred on the 10th and 11th of May, 1996. When eight people caught in a blizzard died on Mount Everest during attempts to descend from the summit. Um, And it was kind of three distinct groups that this happened to. I'm going to focus in on two. Um, One was from a commercial climbing group called Adventure Consultants. And one was from a rival commercial climbing group called Mountain Madness. Ooh. So Mountain Madness was led by a man named Scott Fisher. He had two other guides with him, Anatoly Bukreev and Neil Beidelman. And they were guiding eight clients up the mountain with the help of various Sherpas. And so their direct competition is this other group, Adventure Consultants. Why is there competition when everyone's going to die anyways? The commercialization of Mount Everest is also a really interesting topic that I could (gasps) talk about later. Ooh. (laughs) We getting capitalists today, honey. (laughs) So um, Adventure Consultants is led by this uh, man, Rob Hall. And he also had two guides with him, Mike Groom and Andy Harris. And they're guiding another eight clients. Notable in this Adventure Consultants group is a reporter from an important mountaineering magazine outside, and his name is John Krakauer. Um, He's a pretty famous author because he also wrote um, that book about Christopher McCandless, Into the Wild. Ooh, really? Yeah. Did he go up Everest, though? You're about to find out. No! So um, the guy in charge of Adventure Consultants, Rob Hall, had brokered a deal with Outside Magazine for advertising space in exchange for a story about the growing popularity of commercial expeditions to Everest. And he was guiding John Krakauer for free, so like at cost for him, because he wanted that advertising space so badly. So these two groups are heading up Everest. And they decide to kind of travel together because a lot of people are trying to climb Everest and there could be big delays as different groups pass through. However, they end up hitting delays anyways because um, there was an area that should have had guide ropes set up and there were none. So that meant that the Sherpas and guides had to go ahead, string up the ropes while everyone else waited. And then everyone could go one by one in a single file line. So this ended up... awful. Yeah. 
And at this point, they're like past Camp Four. They're like way up at the fucking top of Everest. I'm exhausted just no, thinking about it. No, thank you. So they ended up getting delayed for like around three extra hours because of these guide rope problems. And everyone was just sitting around in this super low oxygen environment. So they started using their bottled oxygen, which is like just oxygen tanks they carried with them. And at this point, like, they're not even really near the top, and the guides are getting worried that they're going to run out of bottled oxygen before the descent down the mountain. That's a great worry. Yeah, right? I would be like, hmm, let's not. (laughs) I don't want to be in a situation where I might run out of oxygen. No, yeah, I agree. Ever. Though I would prefer it to being underwater without oxygen. There you go. I'll take it. I don't know which I'd prefer. Are you serious? So Everest has a rule. such an easy choice for me. I'm sorry. We'll listen to the end of the story and then we'll find out. Okay, okay. Everest has a rule that 2 p.m. is the last safe time for someone to make it to the summit and still turn around and get back to camp safely. So, like, if you're climbing and it hits 2 p.m., you are supposed to turn around no matter where you are on the mountain, pretty much. Because it gets, what, too cold? It gets too cold. It gets too dangerous. It gets dark. They're just like, we can't guarantee. Just don't do it. Just don't. Just if you're not there by 2, turn around. Just do it. Fair enough. Notably, most of the clients in these two groups reached the summit at 4 p.m., two hours past turnaround you time. You cannot just play around with this shit. Yeah, so some wondered if the fact that John Krakauer was there um, was the reason that the guides didn't make everyone turn around at 2 p.m., like, because they had this journalist with them. Mm. They wanted to show him, like, isn't it amazing? Isn't it great? Yeah, we can push it just a little bit past the turnaround time. It's probably fine in reality. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. And, like, that's the thing. Probably it is fine if you hit the t- top at three and then you turn around. Like, probably you live. But why would you want probably? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why would you want probably? So it's been a really tiring day getting up the damn summit. The last members of the team reach the summit at 6 p.m. Are you fucking kidding me? And they all start their descent. And as they begin descending, they realize the weather is becoming not cute. No. So snow had begun to fall at 5 p.m. and soon a full blizzard set in, reducing visibility, burying the ropes, and obliterating the trail back to the camp the teams had broken on the ascent. Oh, fuck. Um, Early in the trip, a few members of the group had fallen ill. Um, What does that mean? They, a couple of them got altitude sickness, and this one guy had recently had, like, surgery on his eyes, and then being up in the high altitude had fucked with, like, his still (gasps) wounded eyes, so he went blind. Oh, fuck. His name is Beckweather. I'm gonna get back to him. No. So, the leader of the one team, Scott Fisher, he, um, had, like, been traveling up and down the mountain a lot because he had been helping people, and so he was, like, very tired, and he was having breathing problems, And then the other team leader, Rob Hall, he had fallen back to help one of his clients, Doug Henson. Doug had run out of bottled oxygen, but he was determined to reach the summit. So Rob was like, I'll go up to the summit with him. You guys go down and I'll just bring him down when we have time, when I can, (laughs) when he has reached the summit. You should have turned around. Yeah, just say no. We'll do it tomorrow. And Scott Fisher um, is unable to descend because he's so sick. So he ends up like staying with a Sherpa. And everyone else on his team goes down. He's like, just send help back up because I can't move. All right. I'm going to sound like an idiot. What is a Sherpa? So a Sherpa... No, this is a good question. So a a Sherpa is technically a Tibetan ethnic group. Like, they're a people, but they are renowned for their ability to navigate Everest and other mountains. And some people think that they actually have, like, evolved in their DNA to do better at higher altitudes. 
That's amazing. Which is very cool. That's not necessarily science, but it's kind of science. Um, but so it's on these science we recognize on yeah. this podcast. Um, some Sherpas have like climbed Everest twenty times. So on these wow. expeditions, there's often like you hire Sherpas and they either like get you up to camp four and then you do the top by themselves or like they're you know what I mean they're there to help they just sound of. awesome to have around yeah they're good to have <laughs> they um they're better than you at climbing the mountain I believe that so Scott Fisher's staying on the top of the mountain he's like I can't move um around that time Rob Hall who had stayed behind to help this other guy Doug Hansen radios for help he says that Doug has fallen unconscious but he's still alive but that Rob can't get him down the mountain by himself. So one of the other guides, Andy Harris, grabs some extra oxygen and water, and he starts climbing alone to get up to Rob Hall and Doug Hansen. Aww. John Krakauer, the journalist on the expedition, of course, later wrote a book about the experience, because if you're a journalist on an ill-fated expedition, of course you're going to. You're a little excited. <laughs> and in it, uh, he notes that by this time, the weather had deteriorated to a full-scale blizzard, and he said, quote, Snow pellets born on 70 mile per hour winds stung at people's faces. Oh, fuck. So um, a ton of climbers, six members of the Mountain Madness team, and three of the Adventure Consultant team end up getting lost on the south face of the mountain because the snow is so thick. Oh, my God. So they just kind of have to, like, hunker down until the snow passes. Um, and two of them from the Adventure Consultant team, Beck Weathers, who had gone blind in the altitude, um, and Yasuko Namba, wandered around in the blizzard until midnight. Finally, near midnight, the bl- the blizzard clears up. And so, like, the people who made it to Camp 4 realize, like, okay, maybe I can go up a little and see if I can find all these lost fucking people. Yeah. So one of the guides from Mountain Madness, Anatoly Bukreev, he had descended way earlier in the day because I think he just had a feeling that, like, some bad shit was going to go down. And everyone should have followed him. I know. But so he literally, like, got there, took a nap, ate a meal, and then he was like, now I am physically able to save a shit ton of people. Oh, he sounds cool. I respect uh, young Anatoly. So, <laughs> oh, because he napped. Because <laughs> he took a nap. So he is able to locate um, the six climbers from the Mountain Madness group, and they're, like, freezing cold but okay. So he brings them down to the Oh camp. my god, he saves them? Yeah. Wow. And he also locates the two members of the Adventure Consultants group, but he thinks they are so close to death, there is nothing he can do to help them. They are both technically alive when he finds them. Oh god. But he's like, I can't help them. So he left them there for the night. So now it's the next day. <laughs> so everyone's story that I was telling you before, they survived a freezing night on the mountain. Oh my god. So Rob Hall radios base camp and says he's on the south summit. He said that um, the third climber who had come up to greet them had reached him and Doug Hansen. But um, now Doug Hansen was, quote, gone. And Uh. Harris, the other guide, was missing. So this can happen on Everest, especially when it's snowy. People just suddenly and very quietly fall off the edge of the mountain and they are never heard from again. What? Yeah. How? How? Because it's so snowy you can't see where you're going and you're on a 30,000 foot mountain. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> so by gone, does that is that what he meant? Or dead? So it's, so with the one guy, with Harris, it seems like he meant missing. Like, I think he walked off the edge of the mountain. It's not clear what he meant with Doug Hansen if it was that he wandered away or if it was that he, they saw him die. But he certainly wasn't with them anymore. 
So Rob Hall is radioing base camp and he asks them to call his pregnant wife, Jan Arnold, on the satellite phone. Oh. And this is their last communication. Oh, no. They choose a name for their unborn child. He reassured her that he was reasonably comfortable. And he told her, sleep well, my sweetheart. Please don't worry too much. And then shortly thereafter, he froze to death in his sleep. And his body remains on the mountain to this day. Oh, God, that's awful. I know. That's so sad. It's so sad. Oh, God, that's awful. I, I was just talking about weddings for the longest time. <laughs> I know. Fuck. <laughs> Sorry. That one, that's oh, really... Oh, is that the worst of it? That's the worst oh, of it. Oh, thank God. The other, the leader of the other expedition, Scott Fisher, who had gotten really sick at the top of the mountain and had just been like, I can't go down. <laughs> that's so... a big move for me. <laughs> so he's located by a bunch of Sherpas the next day. Um, and he's still alive, but he's so close to death, they know he they can't save him. Uh, in the cold, he had removed his gloves and his jacket in a fit of paradoxal undressing, which you talked about in the um, talk about that, yeah. Dial of Pass episode. So he did that. And so they basically just made him as comfortable as they could, and he died on the mountain. And his body is also still there to this day. Wow. And okay, now we come back to the craziest part of this story, Beck Weathers. I want to hear about Beck. <laughs> when we last saw Beck, he and another member of his group, Yasuko Namba, had been left to die on the mountain because the guide thought... Oh, right. I forgot about that. There them. was just no way they could survive. They were too far gone. And he had also been the one who, like, was having trouble seeing because he had had eye surgery and the altitude had messed with that. So Stuart Hutchinson, um, a different client on the adventure consulting team, ended up launching a second search to try to get to Weathers and Namba. And he finds them alive, but barely responsive. They're both in, like comas basically because they're so cold and so he consults with other people that are there and he's they they again are like okay they can't be saved like this is awful but they can't so he lets leaves them to let nature take its course um and all the survivors are like yeah there's nothing else we could do for them unfortunately and then later that day Beck Weathers rolls into base camp. He had gotten up, he woke up from his coma, and he walks down the mountain into base camp. He is miraculously somehow alive. Oh my god. Everyone there is like, what the fuck? You're we, a ghost. We left you to die twice. How are you still Honestly, we're a little disappointed here. you're alive. <laughs> so he's suffering from severe hypothermia and frostbite. The entirety of his face and his hands are black from it. Oh, fuck. And the survivors at base camp are like, it's crazy that you're here. There is no way you're going to survive the night. They put him in a tent. They make him, like, they put him in a sleeping bag. They make him as comfortable as possible. And they're like, I can't believe that Beck wandered down the mountain and now he has to die in this tent. Like, bummer. Okay. <laughs> Don't tell me he lives. A storm that night caves in Beckweather's tent. So when the others that wake get up in the morning, they're like, oh, so he got snowed on all night. He is dead. And they're about to leave. And then one of them's like, well, I'll go check. And he is still alive in that tent. Beckweather's. And he is able to walk down the mountain on his frostbitten feet. He needs to be supported. Um, by like, there's eight healthy climbers who are taking turns, basically helping him down the mountain, but he is walking. And then he is finally evacuated in a daring high altitude helicopter rescue. And he survived and recovered and is alive today. Um, but he lost his nose, his right hand, half his right forearm, and all the fingers on his left hand to frostbite. Well, yeah. Yes. But he's- Unfortunate, but yeah, but he's he's alive. alive. Oh my God. 
I read an interview with him and the best part of it is he was like, you know, they told me that climbing Everest was going to cost me an arm and a leg, so I guess I got a pretty good deal. Are you fucking kidding <laughs> me, Beckweathers? Like, Beckweathers! What? Um, so that's the high point of the story. It's obviously horrifying in, in its entirety. Ultimately, eight people died during this blizzard. Um, and it caused a lot of discussion about whether climbing Everest should be commercialized. It should not. Yeah, so that was the thing, kind of, was that, um, you know, no one on that trip had never climbed a mountain before, but a lot of people on the trip had never climbed a mountain over 8,000 feet. A lot of them were, like, not experts, and they were like, well, if I can ke- if I hire a guide and he has bottled oxygen for me, I'll be fine. No, but th- this is the thing, is that it's like, you either are an expert and you know that you're equipped to do it yourself, mm-hmm. or you're an idiot and you just walk yourself into your death. Which is what Which that Doug Hansen we guy did. We can't stop you. But you shouldn't make people think that they can live. Yeah. Just because they hire somebody. Yeah. That seems not right. Yeah. So it, it's caused a lot of discussion about that and about the use of, like, bottled oxygen. But it's just crazy and horrifying. And just go on a normal hike if you want to. Don't climb Mount fucking Everest. Why would anyone do that? What are you trying to prove? Why would you do that? I don't know. That's that story. That was awful. I'm sorry. It was well researched and told by you, but I hated it. (laughs) Um, So now, think about this. Would you rather drown in the ocean or would you rather call your pregnant wife and name your unborn child together and then freeze to death? No, I'd call her up. (laughs) No way. No way. No drowning for me. Drowning's over so much faster. Is it? I think it is. It is. I, no. I don't <laughs> want to. All these people survived a night on the mountain. No. <laughs> You'd still rather freeze to death on Everest. And your body's there forever. That's kind of cool. Do you think that's cool? No, it's not cool. But I don't want to drown. I don't know how much clearer I can make it. That's fair. I don't like boats. I, I don't like don't. it. No, no, no. I know. You're right. You're right. But I have shivers down my spine. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so thank you for that. And um, thank you. I am going to be way more thoughtful about weddings crazy. now. Don't talk about weddings right now. <laughs> Men have died and lost their noses. Oh, he got God. a new nose. They grow, They grew it out of the skin of his ear, and now he has a new nose. I don't have the mental energy to think about that right now. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> oh, God, I can't. Usually, the, it's the intensity. We kind of flipped the intensity this time. <laughs> we did a little bit. But I love it. I um, think it, I think we gotta keep you guys on your toes. You guys are used to being comfortable in the second segment. Uh-uh. Not uh-uh. anymore. You don't know what we're gonna do to you, <laughs> but you know it's gonna be terrible. All right. But with that in mind, this week, stay horrified. Stay 